Edgy Talk News Talk. Fast Talk. Talk Radio. Kevin O'Sullivan. Full contact, common sense conversation. Talk Radio. The home of free speech. Plain talking. Pioneering. Kevin O'Sullivan. Hear the world differently. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Uh, this is the second hour of my mid-morning spectacular. I'm standing in for Mike Graham until he returns from America tomorrow. He should be back uh, all things being well for 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I think I'm, I'll be joining him uh, for an early morning chat, or early-ish, around about 9.30 uh, every day this week until uh, Thursday. It's a sort of new feature we're going to have a go at. Uh, me and Mike uh, setting the ball rolling every day from 9.30 to 10.00. Uh, so that'll be tomorrow when after Mike gets back from America. Uh, in a little while, I'll be asking uh, why a theatre in East London thought it was all right to uh, say we don't want white people to come to this show. We don't want uh, this show to be spoiled by being under the white gaze. I mean, imagine if you said that about black people. Don't want black people coming to this show. The black gaze will spoil this show. Imagine if you said that. Why can you say that about white people? white audiences but not black audiences there's a lack of equivalence there that i think needs to be addressed and also later in the hour we'll be going back to that uh, duke and duchess of hazard story in a uh, New York, where we put to the, under the microscope that uh, high speed or this alleged near catastrophic car chase that Harry and Meghan took part in. Uh, their version of events, of events seems to be uh, different from everybody else who was involved. So once again, the question has to be, are we being subjected to Harry and Meghan's truth about this alleged uh, high speed near catastrophic car chase or uh, is this as opposed to the truth so we'll be having a look at that later in the hour but first for the first next half hour or so very pleased uh, to see in the studio he's come to see us uh, peter hitchens the mail on sunday columnist and author welcome peter thank you for having me Thank you for coming. Now, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, attending a, a lunch at which you were the star guest and speaker because you have a new book out called A Revolution Betrayed. Uh, and this is the story of uh, our abolition of uh, essentially most of our grammar school system, uh, which you say uh, has done nothing to achieve egalitarianism at all. In fact, quite the reverse we now have a kind of privileged education system through the back door. It just hasn't worked. It's privileged, but worse. Yeah. And when we had proper schools in this country up till 1965, mm. uh, they were open to anybody who had the talent to go to them. Mm. There were obviously, it wasn't a perfect system, mm. far better than now. And they were much, much better. So if you were a talented person in this country, you could go to one of the best schools in, in, in the country, far better. I would say than even the top uh, private schools now, and they they were open. If all you need to do was was pass an examination, and we got rid of this on the grounds that it was unfair. And so now, instead of every year people taking a test to decide whether they go to to the grammar school or not, we have a thing called National Offer Day every March, where people are simply told which school they're going to. And this is usually on the basis of how, how, how big a house their parents can afford and how nice a part of town. 
which is totally uh, unequal. And the other thing about it is the new style of school, the comprehensive school, where everybody is supposed to go, and and, and there is the, the, they are bigger and more chaotic and harder to manage. The standards are much lower than they were in the grammar schools, and if you you can tr you can trace this right the way through the examination system. The old GCE O-level, which has now been replaced by the GCSE, was a much, much tougher exam. And the A-level, which went, which then came after it, was also much tougher. When I was in secondary school in the early 1960s, it was commonly said that a set of three English A-levels was the equivalent of an American college degree. Mm -hmm. And there was a thing called the brain drain, uh, where Americans actually poached the, the products of our schools to go and work in, in, in American industry because they were so much better than anything American comprehensive schools. They call them high schools, but that's what they are. American comprehensive schools were producing. And all that's gone. We had a tremendous national asset and we destroyed it for reasons of dogma, as we so often do. Uh, uh, this is a, about uh, a kind of rejection of the whole concept of selection. So that, uh, no, no, it's a rejection of the concept of selection by ability. Selection, everyone's perfectly happy. It's the most extraordinary that very left-wing people are perfectly happy with selection by wealth. And selection by ability they won't have. There's right. a huge amount of selection in our system. It's, it's, it's vicious and irreversible. If you, if you didn't get into grammar school in the old days, there was a chance, not as good a chance as there should have been, that you could later on uh, make the jump across into grammar school if you turned out later on to be to be qualified for it but if you fail the, the if you fail the test of money you fail it for life unless your parents win the lottery you'll always be stuck in the wrong postcode but if we talk about that academic selection uh, my question would be why why at a certain point around about 1965 did uh, various governments or successive governments decide that the whole process of academic selection for kids was wrong? Because, because they, I don't think it is they, wrong. they didn't decide it was wrong. They decided it was too difficult to defend. Uh, like almost all politicians down all the edges, they were both cowardly and stupid. Uh, there had been a, you possibly remember, there was a, a thing which we in this country called the baby bulge. It's the, the term has now been wiped out by the American equivalent, the baby boom. Everybody knew, huge numbers of people came home from the war in 1945, got married, had children. There was an enormous rise in the birth, birth rate in the middle 1940s. And everybody knew that in 1956, uh, the school intake of the secondary schools would be hugely greater than, than it had been before. It had been roaring through the primary schools. It was perfectly visible to see. It was like watching a, a, a tidal wave approaching in slow motion. Did the government do anything about it? Did they, for instance, build any more, open any more grammar schools? No, they didn't. So when the baby bulge hit the schools in 56, very large numbers of people who were qualified to go to grammar schools failed to go into them. And this caused a great deal of discontent among parents who thought, it, quite rightly, it was unjust. And people began to turn against the system. And politicians, instead of saying, right, we'll fix it, said, OK, uh, we'll avoid fixing it. Instead, we'll, we'll accept, finally, the pressure to go comprehensive and, have, uh, and get rid of the of selection by ability, and everything will be fine. Everybody will get a grammar school education, they said, which is a bit like uh, that stupid Marks and Spencer slogan, exclusively for everyone. <laughs> it cannot be done. You cannot have a, a superb selective education for everybody. And we didn't. And the quality of all the schools declined with amazing speed. I think it's a good early example of when the Tories, and they, and they uh, exemplify this uh, greatly to this day, when they started becoming terribly afraid of Labour policies and sort of adopted them, assimilated them in order to sort of be Labour-like. So 
the dirty little secret of uh, Margaret Thatcher when she was education minister, she was responsible for closing far more grammar schools well, than Labour ever she did. She was responsible for allowing them to be closed. I don't think she particularly wanted to do it. And she came under a lot of pressure from Ted Heath, who, who was, as far as I can tell, actually in favour of it, though he himself went to a grammar school in, in Broadstairs and got to Oxford from it. Uh, he was in favour of it. I think she probably had misgivings about it, but what, what she did as education secretary was, was approve the schemes which local authorities put up for getting rid of grammar schools. It, she, they could have stood up to it, if, if, but if, if, uh, if Heath didn't want to stand up to it and she'd wanted to stand up to it, he'd probably have sacked her if she hadn't. But yeah, it is true. It is a, it is a, a, very, a very major a failure in her life that she didn't do that. Uh, let's talk about generally, I mean, if I would suggest that uh, the comprehensive system uh, betrayed uh, kids of great talent, to betrayed the cleverer kids, because as you said, uh, the idea was everybody got a grammar school education. In fact, what happened was everybody got a comprehensive school education. So you did have uh, kids who would have been doing very well at grammar school, probably uh, sort of squashed by a system that uh, didn't allow their talents to uh, develop properly. So I, I would say that's an abrogation of our response. Well, there's a large part of the book. Uh, there, there are two appendices. Yeah. One of them is a list yeah. of, the, of, of, the, of the grammar schools which were yeah. destroyed. As far as we, it's not complete. We did what we yeah. could. And the other was taken from who's who, a list of as many people as we could find who'd, who'd come from ordinary, unrich backgrounds and become very prominent in society having gone to grammar schools. Yeah. And it was huge. A number of people, the whole, how, our society was transformed in the in the fifties and early sixties, by this huge numbers of people who would never normally have got to Oxford or Cambridge were getting in. These people were going on to become senior civil servants, judges, mm -hmm. uh, senior officers in the armed forces, anything you like, and of course very talented uh, figures in the worlds of of the arts and entertainment, such as Alan Bennett, uh, who's who, who must be who 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 went to two grammar schools, in fact. And Alan Rickman, the great Shakespearean actor whose father was a house painter, uh, but who still went to one of the best schools in the country. And, and the, the, the country was completely transformed in a way that nobody had seen before. And then suddenly the curtain was rung down and it, and, and it stopped. And now we, we end up with, with the, the, the fee-charging schools dominating everything again, which, is, which they were ceasing to do in the middle 60s. Uh, the closure look, of the grammar schools saved the private schools in this country. So if you look at some of the things that are going on in our state schools now, and for, for, for that matter, private schools as well, uh, you know, this kind of the foisting upon children of uh, nonsensical, unscientific nonsense about there being 120 genders, uh, the uh, foisting upon them of a sort of trans uh, ideology whereby, you know, 12 year olds are, are told, oh, take these drugs and block your own puberty and uh, all, all of this. How do we get to this position where it seems to me we're, we're being so irresponsible about the welfare of children in our schools? How did we get well, to this point? You, know, you and I would agree, disagree. Have, many people have different views on, on the, the things which you've just mentioned, and, and that's proper in a free society. What I object to is that schools have ceased to be educational institutions and have become more and more propaganda and indoctrination institutions. It's very hard to find out. I get indications of it from letters from readers who say that their children have been upbraided, for instance, in, in their schools by teachers because their parents read my newspaper, uh, this kind of thing. But 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How anyone would find out the level of political indoctrination in schools, I don't know. They're not open to this kind of examination. But the real reason for it is that they stopped educating. I'll tell you a little story before we go to break. Uh, after your excellent speech and that lovely lunch, uh, I did find myself in the, uh, uh, in the lavatories, the gents, later on, and uh, a couple of old gentlemen who'd been at your speech who said, uh, that's a very interesting speech, although I'm not sure that I agree with Hitchens that uh, uh, children shouldn't be upbraided for reading the Daily Mail. So I said, well, it could be worse. It could be The Guardian. And he said, it's a much better written paper. I said, have you read it lately? <laughs> and he said, yes, I have. I said, well, it's a paper by illiterates for illiterates. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll resume this conversation after this break. I'm with Peter Hitchens, the economist from the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm still with uh, the economist from the Mail on Sunday and the Daily Mail, Peter Hitchens. Uh, today, uh, Peter, your paper's got uh, the, the splash story is that uh, drug driving has overtaken drink driving as the premier motoring offence. Uh, and they've done a compendium of various stories yeah. of the drug driving tragedies. It's a great piece of work. And, and the, you've written a piece yeah. saying uh, the police gave up the fight against drugs years ago and this is the result. Yeah, the, 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 the story has a lot about the fact that although the dr drug driving has overtaken the drink driving, the police are struggling to cope with it because of the, the, the ways in which they have to gather evidence. And it's not that the, the, the people are not, it seems to me, being prosecuted anything like as effectively for as they should be. But it's a secondary problem. The primary problem is that these drugs are so common in society that, we should, that, that, that people think it's quite normal to be smoking marijuana uh, and taking other drugs before driving. And then they go out and do it unless they actually have an accident and, and injure or kill someone. No one will know because I don't know when you last saw a police road patrol simply there for its own its own sake, and so what you find out the reason why it's 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 become so noticeable is obviously because so many accidents are taking place in which it's now possible to find out we have the equipment to find out uh, that the that the driver involves is uh, has been taking drugs and these drugs are illegal but it, it the, the the funny thing is as far as i know the, the anyone can correct me if i'm wrong here as far as i know those people who are prosecuted for this offense of, of drug driving are not then prosecuted 
also for the the offence which they they've proved they've committed, which is possession of the drug involved. Yeah. Nothing happens. You know, it's still the case with marijuana. The the maximum sentence is is, is five years imprisonment, and an unlimited fine, simple, for simple possession. The law still says that. I don't believe anybody has come within miles of being of of, of having a penalty of that kind for that offence for many many years. In fact. As far as I know, uh, and it, it's very difficult to find these out. As far as I know, the, the, one of the last people uh, to uh, to be found in a in a in a prison for the simple possession of cannabis was about 1979. So the 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 courts and the police have by and large given up acting against it. Was, well, you can't do that. If you do it, you'll fill the prisons up. But they don't understand the principle of deterrence. If a law is properly enforced, people obey it. You don't. You won't have thousands of people saying, right, I'd rather go to prison and stop using marijuana. You'll get thousands of people saying, well, if I'm going to go to prison, if I'm caught with this stuff, I'm not going to take it. Because apart, if you, if, apart from anything else, you don't just go to prison, you lose your freedom to travel, and your whole life is mucked up. And people are not, for, for the sake of a spliff, it seems to me, going to risk that. But that will only happen if the law is enforced. And people say, well, you can't enforce a law like that. So, well, yes, you can. They certainly used to enforce it in this country in the 1960s, and they still enforce it very effectively in two very civilized and advanced countries, uh, Japan and South Korea. I name them. I know people will go on about the countries in Southeast Asia which have life imprisonment and the death penalty for drugs, but I'm not interested in that. That's, that's not the kind of thing we could do in this country, and it would be absurd. But what they do in Japan and South Korea is what we could do, and as a result, Drug abuse in those countries is both much rarer and still very much frowned on in a way that it, it ought to be here and isn't. Yeah. Could do it, but but won't do it because of this endless campaign to legalise. And the campaign to legalise, of course, is backed by people who, who, who want to, to create a huge new industry and also by politicians who see it as a great big tax cow that they could tax heavily to make up for the, the lost revenue as people have stopped smoking cigarettes. Yeah, and the argument that uh, if you legalise drugs that you stamp out the illegal drugs industry uh, is uh, being proved not to be true in America where the illegal drug industry is really prospering in the places where they've legalised cannabis. It's flourishing because people don't want to pay tax. And also, yeah, yeah. If, if there are regulations, which yeah. we're always told would restrict the strength and so forth, then if people want to evade those regulations, then they can go to the illegal dealer. And the illegal dealers flourish because the police... And the, and the authorities have given up doing anything about it. Mm. So it's, it's a complete fantasy. They keep saying it. The amazing thing is the drug legalizers keep making this claim, even though it's been proven to be false by, by actual experience. Indeed. Let's move on to uh, what you wrote about in your column yesterday in the Mail on Sunday about uh, Keir Starmer's plans uh, to change the sort of qualifications for voting. The EU uh, members are 300, I think it's about three and a half million EU nationals live in this country. He wants to uh, give them the vote uh, because he assumes they'll vote for Labour. A uh, bit of an odd idea. I think if you want to vote in a country, you have to become a citizen, and that's what we should ask them. But uh, let's talk about the other branch of his uh, proposed reforms. He wants to give the vote to 16- and 17-year-olds. Uh, you suggested yesterday that that's rather too young to be allowed I think to I, vote. I, if, if, you, if you asked me to come up with an ideal age when people were qualified to vote, I'd come up with something like 40. <laughs> Most people uh, below the age of 40 don't know anything and have no experience. And the idea that they should be in charge of selecting the government of the country uh, seems to me to be, uh, how should I say, uh, worrying. Uh, and if you look at <laughs> look at what's happened in this country, uh, particularly, I was 
myself one of the first people to vote at 18. Uh, when Harold Wilson introduced voting, <coughs> voting in 18 for the 1970 general election, uh, I had just t- turned 18 the October before, and I, so I qualified. And I didn't think at the time that I was qualified to vote, and I certainly don't think so now. And I think 18 is, is, is far too young. It's extraordinary how the age of majority used to be 21, accepted as 21, and then suddenly, simply because Harold Wilson decided to change the voting age, all that alters. You know as well, don't you, that someone can vote, they can also be on a jury. Yes. So if you have votes of 16, you'll have 16-year-olds on a jury deciding, d- deciding the, 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 the life fates of, uh, of, of people who, you know, who's, who, who can have their lives ruined by a wrong decision. I find that also quite frightening. I th- also think that, that you know, if you are going to give 16-year-olds the vote, then we've got to uh, have a look at whether or not they're allowed to smoke, drink and do all the other things that adults So You can hardly give them the vote and then say you're not allowed to drink or smoke, can you? Well, I don't know. I mean, what, what is the principle on which people are granted the vote? There se- seems well, to be adulthood? S- there is no such principle. <laughs> no. The principle is what politicians think will suit them. So yes. it came in, 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 in 1970, it, it, it seemed to the Labour government that they might survive a close approaching election if, if 18-year-olds got the vote. Nobody was campaigning for it at the time except the monster raving loony party. And do you remember screaming Lord Such? That was the only person who was campaigning for vote stating at the time. He, Nobody had, else he had the vision. The, he there had the vision. It, <laughs> and, and there it was. And people say, well, what about, what about soldiers? Uh, how can they? Uh, how, how can they be allowed to serve in the military and not allowed to vote? To which I would say uh, that, of course, if they were conscripted, you have a very strong point. But if they volunteer to go into the army, then they volunteer to go into the army. I, I, I'm, I have very strong reservations about people volunteering to go to the army at 16 myself, and I'm also quite worried about the the length of time for which they're often required to sign on. But that's a different issue. If you have conscription, which I'm largely opposed to, it, it, it is a different question. But there are there are a lot of things which people can do, uh, will will seek to be allowed to do, which in which they can only actually harm themselves. But the problem with voting is that you can harm other people if you vote if you vote for a really bad government. My last point question to you is I have a, a note here saying uh, it says Hitchens stop hiding from my questions Lord Haig explain. Well, I in the in 2014 when the president of Ukraine who was democratically and properly elected wasn't a nice person but he was properly elected Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown in what was in in my view beyond doubt, an illegal and violent coup d'etat. Uh, the, William Hague was Foreign Secretary, and he told Parliament, uh, I, I have to make this very brief, that the, that the handover of power had, in fact, been according to the Constitution of Ukraine. Well, it wasn't. And I thought that I should take him to task for this. I wrote to William Hague uh, at an address which was provided by his own website, and he answered, and he gave an inadequate answer, in my view. My, if you look for this on, my, on the Peter Hitchens blog, you'll find all the details. And I then wrote to him again. And hilariously, to the same address, which is still the address given on his website, by the way, hilariously, it came back. Yeah. It appeared to have been opened. Right. I won't give you all the details of how I think it did. It did. <laughs> and there were all these stickers stuck all over saying, not at this address. And I thought, oh, come on. <laughs> He's hiding. Oh, from. come on. Honestly, this is a man who used to be quite witty. And this is just so pitiful that he can't. It, 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 it's serious. If you if you tell Parliament something that isn't true, it's a serious business, and he ought to face up to it. And I think it should be corrected. And I, rather than having stickers 
put on letters. The stickers on letters. Who, who is at that address then? If he's not there, who is it there? Who put the stickers on? Yeah, who? I wonder. I wonder. Peter, fantastic to talk to you. Really good of you to come in. That's Peter Hitchens, uh, columnist on the Mail on Sunday, uh, with his views on uh, all the important issues of the day. Always a and some unimportant ones as well. Uh, well, so one or two unimportant <laughs> ones, but mainly important. Uh, really good to see you, Peter. Thank and you, you too, Kevin. Uh, Peter Hitchens there. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV Live, the Talk Radio Studios. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.